This is A Word Fitly Spoken, by words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scripture, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more, always from the fullness the Lord has given us in his holy word. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi, special guest today, the Reverend David Oppel from Paducah, Kentucky. Welcome back, David. Good to be back, guys. Good to be back on. How are things in the Commonwealth? Things are going well. We are, I, I guess we're in the middle of summer still, but muggy. There's a rain shower every 30 minutes. You're never sure if it's going to actually thunderstorm or not. So it keeps life interesting. That sounds about right. Zelwyn, how about up your way in the great white north? Well, you know, winter is approaching. <laughs> it might be August, but we'll, we're getting closer. Good, good. A little. Uh, it's actually a little bit like fall here in the state of Iowa. Getting a lot of rain, though. A little cooler. Tomato plants are coming in, so a lot of free tomatoes. Very generous native people out here with the produce, I must say. So that's good. Yeah, we ended up actually getting quite a few cucumbers from members of the congregation, and they were very good. We had to pickle quite a few of them to, to make it last, but that's always a, a nice process, too. But Well, it's good. It's part of homesteading and self-reliance, right? It's good to have some things tucked away, you know, for a rainy day or if it hits the fan. Or, or always, winter, always, as the case or, may be. Or, or winter. Hey, in North Dakota, one thing's as dangerous as the other. Do you Are you getting ready? Is it canning season, Zelwyn? Do you have a canning season? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I would say that if people are going to can, this would pretty much be the time, or at least the early part of it. So. Okay, good. David here is in a city, uh, right. or a larger city. I'm a sort of in a city. So, David, yeah, I hope you have a plan to bug out, you know, if you need to. Or to bug in. Yes, yeah, we're obviously only talking about winter, well, I'm, see, I guess. Paducah is right on the Ohio River, So, and on the other side is the Shawnee National Forest. So, there's plenty of places to run to, run to and hide. <laughs> to duck in. Yeah. Good stuff, good stuff. Uh, stay tuned, folks, for a special survivalist episode coming up in the near future. Um, <laughs> That's going to be like a 10-part show. A <laughs> 10-part, yeah. And then the history, never mind. All right. So we're here today to talk about biblical piety and prayer. Now, piety, for what it's worth, has become something of a loaded term in the broader Christian culture. So how are, let's just begin here. How are we going to define piety? What is piety from a biblical perspective? Other words that you'll hear piety go by, we don't want to define by synonyms, but it, it can at least begin to answer your question, Willie. You might come across it as godliness, or maybe sometimes people will refer to uh, when they talk about spirituality. But I think if I was going to give a definition, I would say it's the active response of the Christian to to what God has done for us. So the what we often call the spiritual disciplines are really what we're talking about when we talk about the practice of piety. Could we also include the term holiness here? Yeah, I think so. I mean the goal the goal of piety is an increase in holiness. I know that that maybe even just saying increase in holiness might cause some people, the hair on the back of their necks to stand up a little bit, but there, this is a real thing. By faith, we are covered in Christ's holiness, but there is also the growth in holiness that, that happens in a Christian's life. Yeah, when we talk about something like holiness, we, we almost portray it as kind of a frightful thing, especially if we start with the holiness of God. In the Bible, God is so holy that Moses, for example, has to take off his shoes in the presence of God or or he can't gaze he can only gaze upon the the back of Jehovah and then and it causes his face to glow that sort of thing. So the holiness of God is something from which all holiness ultimately stems, but it is something that we can't really withstand as humans, but our piety in many ways is in response to the holiness and authority of God. Holiness isn't meant to be frightful insofar as you then just ignore it. The holiness of God, but holiness is meant to be informative. We serve a thrice holy God, and then what does that mean for us? Are we as Christians bound to serve and obey God? And if so, is that some kind of legalism, or is it some form of pietism? And that's a word that's going to keep coming up a lot because we're talking about piety. 
and it's the Christian's response to God's command. It's the Christian's fidelity to his calling. That would be part of piety. But does that then make the Christian a pietist? Well, I, I guess the question we have to ask here is, is what do you mean by pietist? Because right. that's, that's always the problem here is we use terms like pietist in very nebulous kind of ways, and it's very difficult to pin them down and to say what it is that we mean by it. It really just becomes a way of attacking someone, especially practices that we don't like, instead of actually trying to define something real and tangible. I guess part of my concern with this too, of course, I did research on pietists um, when I was doing my STM at the seminary. Which you completed in only one academic year, I might add. I did. Yes, I did. But the point is, is that if we don't have any kind of real definition for our terminology, well, then what does it actually mean? I guess, what do we have to ask? We have to ask the question then, what is pietism? What do we mean by that? Yeah. And why are we even discussing the word? And, and really, it's because piety or pietism has become something of a pejorative in Lutheran circles. And, and apart from a definition, it's just become an insult that you throw out at anybody when they say something that you don't like or makes you uncomfortable. You know, hey, maybe you shouldn't drink the whole half gallon of old Curl Frank. Hey, what are you? Were you pietist? Were you? I threw up. I'm fine. I'm going to finish this. Pietist. Can't tell me what to do. Can't tell me what to do. I'm free. Free as a bird. So it's just a term that's that's been, I think, used so much that we've kind of lost the meaning. Sure. So what would be a good historic definition of pietism? Why might we not want to be pietists? Oh, uh, do we really want to get into that question? I mean, we well, might take the rest of the episode. It's all right. It's our podcast. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, if in a, in a nutshell, the pietists, I mean, if you want the, my real technical definition, they were trying to bring the ordo salutis into real life so that it ended up focusing on trying to bring aspects of the ordo and to actually, you know, see them in tangible ways. And the reason why that's problematic is because when you go from things like justification to sanctification, from conversion, to, you know, and all these sorts of things, they often happen very, sometimes very subtle ways and sometimes uh, simultaneously, because when God declares us to be righteous, we actually start to become righteous at the same time. And so, Trying to bring that into a historical reality is is where the pietists historically failed. Now, that being said, the way we typically use the term pietism is generally a kind of a holier than thou, a I'm just putting my nose into everyone's business. But again, it's it's not very well defined. So like we an, don't an really English have equivalent it. would be when we call somebody Puritan just because yep. they're a little stuffy. And it really yep. has nothing to do with historic Puritanism. Yeah. And the Puritans themselves got the terminology because they were perceived as stuffy, you know, and stuff like that. Or even even Methodism, for that matter. And the danger of that is when when that, when you know, that pejorative term, uh, term you're a pietist, overtakes the actual, like, biblical usage of a, of a good word, like piety and the practice of piety, then every every reference to piety or practicing one's piety becomes like, well, I, am I a pietist? Oh, no. <laughs> right. And, and you get accused of, you know, you're just, you're trying to speak like the scriptures do. And the pejoratives overtake the actual way that the, that the Holy Spirit speaks. So in all of our talk of piety, we're not trying to be pietists, but we also want to avoid these accusations of pietism. But what we're going to do then is simply take a look at how the Bible speaks of the concept of piety. So piety then is not merely passive, would you say? Right. I, that's what I was trying to say at the, at the beginning there. It's the active response of a Christian. So the Holy Spirit, to use what Zelwyn had just mentioned, when, when a person is converted, there are new desires. There is a new obedience are we on good enough Lutheran terms if I use that, right? This is Augsburg confession kind of stuff. There is a new <laughs> obedience that happens. 
and a new will that is regenerated. You know, I think I've used enough technical terms now. <laughs> and so there is a life of faith that actually does things, right? That actually practices righteousness. Well, you have passages like, what is it, Leviticus 19, correct me if I'm wrong on that, where, you know, you shall be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so that that becoming holy as God is holy doesn't just imply that. Well, yeah, so so the, the definition of holy sometimes gets reduced down to merely set apart. And that's the problem with doing theology solely via etymology. Like, see, it means to be set apart. So all it's saying is that God sets us apart. Okay, there is truth to that. Holiness is us being set apart. But we are set apart to do what? For a certain task, you know, namely mm-hmm. to worship and to to serve him. So to be mm-hmm. holy isn't merely just sitting over in the corner on your line of the, of the ball court there. It's actually getting out and participating in, in the dodgeball game. <laughs> and not just getting a participation trophy either. Yeah, exactly. Not, not just being hit with the balls from the other guy. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and then also with that idea of, you know, you shall be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. That idea that we are being conformed to his holiness implies that we're going to start acting the way that he does. And I think that's that's also brought out when you have the language of walking in the scriptures, for example. Noah is said to walk with God. Enoch is said to walk with God. And it really means to just to act in the way that God is acting. Obviously, that we're not going to do that perfectly because of sin. And we're always going to be struggling with those, those kinds of desires. But we are beginning to walk in the way of righteousness. And piety would be an expression of that. Right. And I think the, uh, the value of, of discussing piety is that the, what, like what you're saying, Willie, of you're, being, you're set apart for a particular purpose. And that particular purpose is not just a vague, like, go and serve God now. But there are actual ways, there's disciplines or there's practices that have always been part of the Christian life. Yeah, and so what so what would that be? What would be it? Yeah, so tonight we're gonna talk about prayer, a Christian praise. This is there should be no question about that. You because of what God has done for you, you can't help but pray. You're going to do that. And so to put some thought into how you would pray is a very natural thing because it is part and parcel with being a Christian. Yeah, prayer prayer is actually a conscious thing. You know, when we put things totally within the passive, then it just becomes, I mean, what would prayer even look like? You're 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 either going to be a Quaker sitting around just sort of waiting or you're going to be a Pentecostal just kind of babbling. Now, it is true that St. Paul says the spirit intercedes where we lack, but at the same time, there is an intentionality to prayer. You say, at this time, I'm going to go and I'm going to pray for this, that, or the other. That is active. And it's not synergy or synergism. It's just what a a regenerate person does. And it takes practice. They're disciplines. So it's not something that we'll ever perfect, but it is something that we can grow in. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I would definitely. Agree, uh, and this this that's the traditional. I think when I think of piety, the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines, come to mind. And I mean, they're different. People will number these things differently. But you ask, what are some other examples? A really good place to look at this is Matthew six. You get three three practices laid out of fasting, prayer, and and giving, alms giving, or or just giving to the poor. That those are like you said, those are you you don't. They don't happen without you consciously choosing to do them. Yeah, and, and this episode is just mostly going to focus on prayer. But let's just take a couple minutes then and talk about fasting and almsgiving. Prayer we get. We, we publish prayer books. We even, you know, new ones all the time. Almsgiving we kind of get as far as the church offering goes. It kind of sort of extends oftentimes just to that. And then fasting. The interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't so much mandate these as he presupposes these things when you do this, when you do this. He doesn't say on such and such day, well, he does in the Old Testament. He says on such and such day, you will give this. But in the New Testament, he doesn't so much say, you will do this, you will do this. He says, when you do it, like as if it's the most natural thing in the world. When you brush your teeth in the morning, you do this. 
Okay. Uh, I hope everybody can identify with that example. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and what does that tell us then about piety and spiritual discipline then? Then at a certain point, it is like breathing or it becomes like breathing. It's that mm-hmm. natural part of you. But unlike breathing, most of us, without some serious handicaps or something, we don't consciously have to think about our breathing, right? <laughs> uh, it just it just well, happens. And maybe and maybe another thing to point out too is that breathing is not all that exciting, right? Yeah, that's a good point. That's an excellent point. You know, because when we when we hear the word discipline too, we shouldn't imagine that we're always going to have some kind of mountaintop experience every <laughs> yeah. time we pray. Or yeah. and nor are you putting you know hobnails in your shoes and and flagellating yourself. Well, maybe you're pray. not, but <laughs> <laughs> Zelman always I, see here. I thought you were hair suit. It was just a hair yeah. shirt. No, I, I have the what is that the 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 cincture or whatever you know the yeah the the, 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 the Opus Day thing yeah yep you betcha <laughs> no I'm just kidding but anyway I mean the point is is that it's not always going to be terribly exciting but it is part of what it means to be a Christian and so we shouldn't try to imagine that we're going to be always doing something that you know even I hate to say it's not entertaining but you know what I mean. You know, sometimes I think we don't do it because, oh, I have other things to do. Well, what could be more important than doing the things of God, than doing the things that God has, that wants us to do, and that really shapes us as Christians? Right. Willie, you were mentioning that prayer, everyone admits, okay, prayer, this is something that we should all do, can all get better at, almsgiving, or at least offering in church, but fasting, you're... I, you didn't quite say it, but I think you were going to, that fasting is in that triad. Fasting is the one that gets most overlooked. And, you know, Jesus does say, keep your, this is part, this is a private practice. This is not something that you broadcast where, and neither should prayer or almsgiving, but there is a public nature to those other two that is not to be part of fasting. And that's, I think this is a helpful distinction to make. There are when you think about piety, there is both a public or corporate aspect to to some of these things, and then there's also a private side to them. Some of some of these things are done in secret. Yeah, and even yeah, even even prayer. You know, you don't want to just like fasting. Don't stand on the street corner, as Jesus says, and disfigure your face and and make a big show of it. There's always that temptation there with any kind of holy act, even with almsgiving. It's like the scene in the Apostle. Great Sorry, Robert Duvall. Great, great Absolutely. film. You should watch it. <laughs> you know, he comes in. He's been kicked out of his church. Farrah Fawcett, his wife, you know, is there soon to be sort of ex-wife, and they're all singing. It's Pentecostal like holiness service, and he comes up there, makes a big show, and he and he pulls this bill out of his wallet and and throws it in the offering plate. And then some parishioners follow him out, and one of the parishioners says, "Hey, by God, you really you showed him there with that fifty dollar bill you put in. I sure like that." And Robert Duvall goes, "It was a hundred dollar bill." <laughs> It's such a <laughs> well. I would like to point out that a word fitly spoken is a Holy Ghost explosion. So. <laughs> the God gave us ten commandments, and the eleventh commandment, "Thou shalt not shout," <laughs> does not exist. <laughs> the Apostle official movie of a word fitly spoken. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, and with that, we've got to take our first break. We'll be right back with more word fitly spoken. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitlySpoken.
And we're back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grill, Zell and Heidi, David Apple, talking piety and prayer. So that was a good introduction to piety and prayer, guys. So let's get into the logistics of prayer. When, what, where, that sort of thing. So who wants to take the ball? Well, we should pray at all times, unceasingly, for everything, always. Uh, the, the biblical descriptions are, there seems to be no limit on when when we shouldn't pray. But when that actually gets, how that actually gets put into practice, it, one, it's impossible to do that, right? It's And so there seems to be some hyperbole going on there. It's not possible to pray every moment of the day because there's lots of other things that have to be done. So I think when should a person pray should be realized pretty quickly. There's going to be some standard times or the person who's who's serious about this is going to want to say, if I want this to happen, I have to make a priority for it, right? And so the standard times are morning and evening or morning and night. Yeah, because unfortunately, if we leave prayer to be something done entirely spontaneously, it will never happen. I mean, that's just that's just reality, you know, because we'll always the, the flesh will always find an excuse to not pray that the devil will always give us reasons to not pray. And so if we aren't intentional about when we pray, it's very easy to just never pray at all, which is a which is a real danger. Yeah, you pray. I mean, you might pray at your meals, right? It, that would be <laughs> that that seems to be the natural time when when your flesh will even allow you to, you know, eke out a, a short, quick prayer. But but you are right. If you don't make a priority out of it, it's it doesn't just randomly happen. And we, we made a point to emphasize that in the first segment of there is an active part here. And this this isn't to say that like spontaneous prayer isn't something that happens because it does all the time. There's things that'll come up throughout the day that kind of overwhelm you or surprise you or whatever it might be. And prayer does come rather naturally. But what we're really interested in and what we're talking about here for the the practice of prayer is developing certain habits. And that means setting times aside for these things. Right. Yeah, because when we when we take the time to actually set aside the time to do it, then even our spontaneous prayers will be more frequent as well, I would say. So what would be your practical pastoral advice to people as far as um, beginning their prayer life? I think that there you should recognize in yourself that the importance of praying before you before you like go about your your normal business of the day. Like, why is that important? Well, it's important because this is, you're, you're teaching yourself, you're training yourself to see everything, preparing for everything that's going to come in the day and asking for God's help in those certain things. So to pray at the beginning of the day, before you go about your work, I think that's the best place to start. And then at the end of the day, when you're looking back on everything that's happened, you give thanks for all these things that all the, all the ways that God has helped you. And, and just so that I'm clear about why, why those times are important, it's because then you, you, you're training yourself to see your whole day, your whole life as dependent on God. And I think that's really part of the, the big picture of prayer is learning this complete dependence on God for everything. So then... How should we pray? What would a prayer look like from the words to the posture? Simply, how does does one pray? Well, I think if you want to deal with the content of prayer, you're going to just to speak to God, both what he has already spoken to us, which is why it's so helpful to pray things like the Lord's Prayer or to pray the Psalms, but also just to speak in our own words what it is that you know, is going on in our lives, whether that be a recognition for the things that God has done or a, a asking him, a petitioning him to, to do certain things. I don't know how to sure. put it. I mean, just to do certain things like, you know, to, to give us protection, to, to, to guard us from temptation, that sort of thing. You know, a little bit later on, some more concrete examples of what this looks like, maybe in the, mm-hmm. maybe in the next segment. Is there a proper posture for prayer? 
there, well, I, I think you, <laughs> there's, there's many postures that will be helpful for a person. Things like folding your hands. I mean, the stuff that you're like mom and dad or your grandfather probably has taught you. There is a lot of wisdom to that because it keeps you from distractions. Now, that's not to say that that will make your prayer better, but it, these are very subjective things that do help a person. So folding hands, kneeling, sitting still, all of that kind of stuff, all of those postures helps you to actually focus on what you're saying and who you're talking to. Yeah, it's it's the deliberateness of it. And especially if it's distinct from everything else that you're doing, that really helps you to, like you say, focus on what it is that, that you are doing so that prayer is not just a, a mindless act or something that we are just doing willy-nilly. So, sorry, Willie. That's all right. That happens every, almost every time. That, I'm sure that this is a familiar thing to, well, maybe I shouldn't project, but you know how if you're, you're praying while you're laying in bed, you, j- you just kind of fall asleep and maybe you never actually finish your prayer because you, mm-hmm. or if, if you're a little rude walking, but yes if, yeah if you're and if you're <laughs> you're praying while you're walking about down the street or driving in your car all of a sudden oh you know i missed my turn and <laughs> that interrupts your prayer well yeah and and we need to be careful here too that if you're just because you're not on a kneeler with your hands folded in proper you know masonic hand gestures <laughs> That doesn't mean the prayer is, is somehow invalid or, or less of a prayer. I'm reminded of the story of General Jackson, who writes to his pastor uh, while he's on the battlefield. Stonewall Jackson was in the habit of walking sort of around the woods in a private area when he prayed. And he would always have his eyes closed, but he kept running into trees and tripping over things. And so he writes to his pastor about it, you know, and he, and he finally says, well, I can find no passage of scripture that says that I must have my eyes closed and my head down, so I feel no no guilty conscience for keeping my eyes open while I pray and walk. Mm-hmm. You know, a little advice from Stonewall there. Yeah, since since we're a history posting about this too, I think it's actually rather interesting. The the what we actually do in terms of posture says a great deal about what is happening as well. Do any of you guys know why we fold our hands? There, where that, that comes from? Picture of the old man from Minnesota saying grace. Bread. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Literally the only reason. That's it. Yeah. No. No, it's actually it's a it it comes from the Middle Ages and the the whole the whole gesture itself is is very uh, informative because if you put your your hands palm to palm in the way that you sometimes see very liturgical types doing, that was a gesture of a someone who was about to enter into a liege relationship, who was about to become a vassal. And so the and then the, the the one who was going to be the lord of that relationship would then place his hands around it. So the whole notion of folding our hands is an expression of our dependence upon God coming from the Middle Ages, because God is our liege lord, so to speak. And I think that's a, a very beautiful thing about something that we probably never even thought about why we do it. Good now we know. Yeah, right. no, it's good. Yeah. No, yeah. I had only ever heard do it so that you don't grab other things. Like <laughs> <laughs> Well, because historically like in in Paul's day, the 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 posture is always like pastors typically do when they're praying up front in front of the congregation, you know, to have your hands face up on either side. Yeah, and that's an interesting thing because for centuries and centuries that was exclusively the posture for the pastor as he's praying over the congregation or bishop. Yep. yep. And then at some point in the 20th century, everybody started doing it. Um, and, and you even see it in Roman Catholic churches nowadays. <laughs> Everybody takes the mons orans or whatever it's called. Yeah, the orans. The orans, yeah. And so, yeah, that, that was sort of exclusive, but then... Everybody was to adopt sort of the, uh, the the later development, the hands together, that kind of thing. But yeah, so I mean, but so that, I think that's just a, a great point because it shows that in prayer we are expressing our dependence, right, upon God. It's not that we're trying to force God to do anything for us. It's rather a recognition that everything that we have comes from him. And so even our posture says a great deal about what is happening. And I'm not saying that you have to do it this way, of course. I mean, we're not trying to, to lay down some sort of hard and fast rule. But to be deliberate about what we're doing, even if we're just walking around the woods like Stonewall, 
we, as long as we are deliberate in our intentions and setting it apart as something that God wants us to do, then we are, that's a good thing. That's all I'm trying to say. One, one other thing, Willie, that I would mention here when you ask about how to pray, I, I want to stress the importance of God's name in all of this. So Zelwyn, you mentioned a minute ago, the Lord's Prayer in the Psalms, but to actually make use of God, God's name, this is why he gives the name is so that we can actually call on him, right? And so prayer will utilize God's, that's the, the very first step that you take is to actually call on God's name. And to do that with guidance from the scriptures, you know, to you to call on Father, our Father, there's something very, it's very basic, right? But it's important if you're, if you're thinking through, okay, how am I going to pray? You start with the name and then everything else follows. So then someone wants to learn to pray, but if you're doing, if you're of the mindset that you have to just keep thinking of what to say, what to say, but can become very frustrating. So what is your opinion on ex corde prayers versus pre-written prayers? Well, ex corde, of course, is Latin for out of the heart, a spontaneous prayer, yeah. something made up on the spot. Yeah, extemporaneous might be a more apt extemporaneous. Yeah, description. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And some people are very uncomfortable doing that, and I understand that. So we don't want to denigrate the value of a written prayer, right. of the, the words mm -hmm. of someone else. But at the same time, we can't denigrate the value of an ex corde prayer either. One is not more valuable than the other. Right. And, and we use pre-written prayers because they are a tremendous resource. One, we have them in the scriptures, Lord's Prayer, Psalms, we'll get to that soon. But we have it in the catechism. The model of morning and evening prayer we set forth in the catechism. And Luther gives us an example of, of prayers, and we can use those prayers just as they're written. They're fine prayers. At the same time, as a pastor, you have to be able to some degree to be able to pray ex corde, simply because it might just be the care companion or your prayer book doesn't have something for that specific situation. You know, there's been a flood at Chuck E. Cheese. It's not in the index. What do I do? Yeah. Panic, <laughs> panic mode, and then you, then you get uh, you know tongue tied. Many things have been thought of, but not all things. You're right, <laughs> right. The prayer companion that we have, and these other prayer books are tremendous resources, and they're very very good, especially when you're at deathbed or something like that. In those times, it can be difficult to find the right words, and holy men have have written very good and very faithful prayers for us and for our use. And there is no sin in using a, a prescribed prayer. There is the other side there where a lot of people would say, well, you stuffy Lutherans, you're, you're here using these prayer books, and, and that's not sincere prayer. That's somebody else's words. That's not the sincere intention of your heart, which is just silly. It's a silly notion. That's like saying, well, I needed some words of comfort, and all you did was quote the Bible to me. And that's that's St. Paul's words, or the, that's the words of Moses. Those weren't your words. You didn't make those up to make me feel better. There, there, there's no sin in, e in either of those, and there are a value. There's a value to both of them, and so we should we shouldn't write either one off. I think the reason why people get kind of afraid of ex corde prayers is because they they think prayer needs to be this poetic, you know, well spoken. Like, I have to have it down. I can't stutter or stammer or anything like that. And if I do, then that's going to somehow mess it up. Well, that's not at all the case. Even, I mean, even the, the prayers of, of very small children, I mean, God hears them, right? And we, I mean, those of us who have kids know that children's prayers, when they come up with their own words, they're never very, you know, they're never very poetic. They're, I mean, they're very much usually to the point, pretty, pretty repetitive. But that's okay, because it's still prayer. And so we shouldn't be afraid of using our own words, as well as using something that someone else has written, because they're both speaking to God. So then let's begin to dive in to this discussion, then. What is presumed when we pray? Where do we begin? What's the? There is a, a better and a worse way to structure a prayer. So we wouldn't want to start our prayers off with something like, Dear God... Dear Jesus, gives me that. We don't want to do that. 
Good God, good meat. Yeah, no, yeah, like... exactly. Come, Lord. No, never mind. Never mind. We've... Ouch. <laughs> no, Ouch. No, 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 no. That's, that one's fine. That one's fine, <laughs> I guess. So let us presume when we pray. So we begin with acknowledging God. We know that God listens to us. And more than that, it's not just that he's an operator who has to take the call because it's his job. God actually wants to hear our praise and our supplication. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really the important place to start, Willie. You, God, God's holiness would have the effect of scaring us off from praying to Him if there wasn't a command and a promise that He wants us to, right? Because the person who actually takes seriously God's transcendence and His and His power and our own unholiness, I, you think of the biblical example of like Esther going into the king's court. I think that's a great picture of prayer. The king in that time, you couldn't speak to him until he like pointed his staff at you, right? Until he told you, okay, now you can speak to me. And for the Christian, that is a a good beginning point or a good way to think of ourselves. Yeah. Well, what we need to remember too, when we're talking to God, uh, recognizing how holy he is, is that we do have an advocate with the Father, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. So through the cross of Christ, we now have access to the heavenly throne. And Christ is our mediator. I mean, Christ is God himself, of course. But, you know, speaking in biblical terms here, Christ is our advocate. And so we do approach the throne of God without fear because of the merits of Jesus Christ and through the person of Jesus Christ, which is very important. We don't come to the Holy of Holies for fear that if we touch the ark, we're going to die anymore, any longer. Those warnings are true in the Old Testament. But through the active and passive obedience, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we may boldly go to the throne room of God and petition him. And that's a great gift here. We're not Jews, so we don't have a veil the veil has been rent in twain, and we are one with God, and we can approach him through Christ without fear. Of course, you know, asterisk, we keep that godly fear, but you guys understand understand what I'm saying here. And that's very important because we don't need to be timid when we pray. Humble, yes, as all Christians are, but we can boldly ask for things for the sake of Jesus Christ in accordance with God's will always. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have come across this, but a lot of times people have this, and I think it comes from a, a place of humility, but almost like a sense of, well, I, I pray for other people, but I never pray for myself. And the, that's a, a kind of a misplaced thing there, as if it was greedy. I, I See, I think that's what they're thinking. It's greedy if I pray for myself, and I don't want to be greedy. Well, that's good. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't want to be greedy, but God actually wants you to ask him for things because we depend on him yes, right for everything yeah and that's that's really the point there is that we're when we pray to god we're not asking him like okay there's this deficit that i have in my life and i need to fill it up and god can do that for me so you know hey god help me out here no what prayer is really a recognition that we are dependent creatures that we are the vassals of the lord that everything that comes from his hand is is everything that we need. I mean, there's nothing apart from him. Food, our our home, our family, our life, our health, everything comes from his gracious hand. And prayer is a way of recognizing that in, in a very concrete way. Very good. And with that, we're going to take our next break. We'll be right back with more Word Fiddly Spoken. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Word Fitly Spoken.
This is a word fitly spoken. We're back. We're talking about prayer. Now, guys, let's take a look then at, again, at how we should pray and what would be some biblical examples that would teach us how to pray. The most obvious ones we've mentioned already, the Lord's Prayer and the Psalms, of course, are ready-made for prayer. That's really the best place to start, and that should should really probably form the foundation, the touchstone. You always come back to those things, and I think that just about any book that you're going to read on prayer, any anyone who's going to give you a good advice on prayer is going to try to lead you into how God's word actually directs us and gives us the words to actually say. So those are the primary places. Well, let's take a look at the Lord's Prayer then. Perfect model for prayer. We can really construct any great prayer following that model. Really, we would do well just to use the actual words, of course, and we do quite often. But what's going on in the Lord's Prayer? So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So an acknowledgement of the one we're praying to, and really a praise to him. Uh, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this acknowledgement of who God is, the power of God, and being in accordance with the will of God. And then it moves in to the petitions. I mean, thy kingdom come is a petition, but the petitions for our proper selves. So thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. There you have Jesus himself praying for daily needs. So it goes back to our discussion in the second segment where someone might say, well, I I don't pray for myself. Well, Jesus teaches you to pray for your daily needs and whatever you need. And then then it goes on and on for there. And then, of course, ends with with another praise. And I'm not going to go through the whole exposition of the Lord's Prayer here for you. Check out the catechisms and stuff if, if you're into that. What would be a good place to learn what the Lord's Prayer is teaching us? But that is meant to be a model for us. And yet it too, in this day of extemporaneous prayers, is, is often downplayed a little bit. The use of it as a model is is something that's right. You When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you fall into, of course, the habit of say, just saying the words, right, without necessarily thinking about them. But if you use the if you use the individual petitions and I'm not I'm not trying to suggest that you you know, that you shouldn't say the whole thing. But when you use like an individual petition to guide the rest of your prayer, you know, take the daily bread petition, when that becomes what you start your prayer with, and then you uh, you can certainly then include specific examples of, or specific needs that you have in the day, that's how the Lord's Prayer, not just the saying the words themselves, but it becomes a model for the rest of your prayers and you start to the value of that is you start to see how how it expands into all your other prayers and can kind of direct your thoughts and and helps you think about what you actually need and how that fits into the way Jesus has taught us to pray and the prayer that he's given to us. And, and we want our prayers to be ordered and structured, but we don't want to fall into the trap of making them into into some kind of incantation. You know, I've got to say it just this way in this number of times in order to get the desired outcome. And we don't want to just pull prayers or pull things out of the scripture and make them into something they aren't. Do you guys remember this big craze? My goodness, it's probably been 20 years ago now. David, you might have seen it when you grew up, Zelwyn too. Do you remember the prayer of Jabez? I never, I only know yeah, it by I remember, name. I never I encountered it. it. Uh, yeah, it was a it was a big, you know, evangelical kind of craze there, probably, I'm guessing, late 90s. That sounds about right, maybe early 2000s. And, uh, I mean, that's just kind of what that was. It was taking this sort of obscure passage and and trying to make it into something that it isn't. And when we're using written prayers, you know, we got to be careful about that, too. We don't want to fall into scrupulosity or something like that, simply because it does give way pretty quickly to superstition. And I think that that's a fair that's a fair warning, because to do so runs into the danger of merely rote memory and just repetition for repetition's sake, and that's not really the point of cultivating a discipline around prayer. Repetition can be good and is good, but not when it becomes the end in of itself. As if my prayer doesn't work unless I unless I do it just this way. So there we go. 
Well, isn't isn't that the whole point of Jesus saying, you know, don't be like the the heathen and to heap up words because they think they'll be heard because of their many words? Yeah, or don't give give to be given to vain babblings and that kind of thing. Yeah, and I know sometimes vain babblings is the way that is sometimes, you know, thrown against the whole idea of using written prayers or using things out of the Bible because we could just repeat them vainly. But the the whole point Jesus is trying to make is our prayers are not going to manipulate God because of our performance. Right, right. And we've got more on that coming up because prayer is sometimes equated with that somehow. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that, let's move a little bit away from the Lord's Prayer again. Nothing wrong with repetition, nothing wrong with memorization, that sort of thing at all. All right, enough said. So we're from the Lord's Prayer to the Psalms. Are the Psalms an asset to our prayer lives or what? Well, they certainly are. They are a challenge. I think it's good to to acknowledge this. It it can be a challenge because it is not, well, they're just, they're written in a different time than the way that you and I talk kind of naturally. So the the language is going to be different. The the things that are asked for, you know, sometimes you read a psalm and, and you just think what there was no prayer in that. Even even a famous psalm like Psalm 23 doesn't have a, a real, quote unquote, a petition like, dear God, now please help me with this particular problem. That challenge is also part of the benefit of the psalms, right? Right. Because it makes you, it changes the way that you would by nature pray because I, you know we were just talking about you don't want to fall into these into this incantational mode of prayer but it is good the value of of a written prayer is it it makes you pray in a way that maybe you wouldn't if you were just praying for what is the present thing that I need right here right now sure now and what would be some what would be some other biblical examples of prayer uh, you have like solomon's prayer have Hezekiah praying. You have, I mean, are you looking for actual words? Or are you looking for just, figures? Just examples. Who I mean, you know, they're, <laughs> it's all over the place. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Jesus and, himself. <laughs> right. And we also have <laughs> negative examples too. You know, don't pray like this guy over here. Now, see, I, I think the Pharisee's prayer, you know, the Pharisee and the publican, I think that's a model for prayer, isn't it? <laughs> right. I think they, I'm not like other men. <laughs> <laughs> Just go out in the street corner and, you know, make a show. More of yeah, a danger exactly. for, for, the, for the guys out there in cities. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us don't have people. <laughs> right, right. The cows don't really care. So, so yeah, so prayer does, I mean, it's just, it is all over the place. And it's part of the faithful man's life. And mm-hmm. so prayer then is part of the pastor's life, an integral part of the pastor's life. So what does the pastorate prayer look like, David? Well, I think you look for examples in Jesus' own ministry and you find them. You you don't have a lot of his, you know, what he actually, well, I don't know how you, depends how you define a lot, because we do have a number of places where the actual words Jesus prays are recorded. You have the Lord's Prayer, of course, but then you also have the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. You have the prayer in John 17, you have an extended prayer of Jesus to the Father. Uh, but you, what I want to f- say is you have a number of these just notes. Jesus was off by himself praying. And they usually, they precede some a miracle or, or some, something that he's doing, some act of his ministry. And so you get this model of Jesus at prayer and then at work. And as a pastor, I think that that sets a, a good precedent for us. This is the right example to follow of prayer leads into ministry. And to try to do the one without the other, to try to avoid prayer, not to try to, because nobody would try to, but when you skip prayer because you're busy doing all the other stuff of the ministry, you actually lose some of that power and vitality that comes from a healthy prayer life. The ministry becomes a, a number of functions to perform and you're, you're, you kind of drain yourself because you don't have the prayer that's kind of in the background behind your, your active ministry. Does a pastor have an obligation to pray for his flock? Yes, you do. You, you have an obligation. You've taken a vow that you're going to be diligent in prayer 
I mean that that this is part of the the ordination service and and in every installation as well is that the pastor is going to vow to be faithful and diligent in study and also faithful and diligent in prayer for the congregation and the people under our care. So so yes, absolutely. Zelwyn, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I mean, and praying for all sorts of things too. I mean, it doesn't have to be just those who need our special prayers as if, you know, this person is sick, so they need to hear, you know, I need to pray for them, which we should anyway. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but it's not limited to those kinds of things. We should also pray for their their general spiritual well-being. What would be a way that a pastor could do that? Or what is a way that pastors do do that? Well, one one way, maybe just to use an example that I try to use, is to pray that your own preaching would be fruitful, that it would benefit their their souls and strengthen them unto everlasting life, that they would be given a desire to be in the things of God's house on on Sunday morning and other places too, that you know that that they do have that desire which comes from the Holy Spirit because we are called to be intercessors as much as anything. And that kind of intercession happens in very concrete ways. And I think that would be just some examples. Uh, David, do you have any others? Well, the, just like you said there, on, when is the time when that's going to be naturally on your mind? That's when it makes sense to pray for it is Sunday morning, mm-hmm. right? Or Sunday after the service, you pray for that the word that was heard and studied and proclaimed would take root. And and the same thing can be done during the week on different days. You just say, well, on this particular day, I'm going to pray for, for marriage. And so then you naturally, you know, not just the, the marriages that are maybe you're involved in some kind of counseling with, but you're also praying for the institution of marriage and for harmony and peace within the homes of your members. I, I think that that having kind of days, the days of the week divided up, I'm going to pray for the youth of the congregation on this day, for the elderly and the shut-in on this day, for the sick and dying on this day. That's that's a really helpful way so that you're covering your whole congregation without necessarily naming off every individual person every week. Mm-hmm. Although that's a good practice too. Well, hey, right. Yeah, if you can do, I don't want to, <laughs> if somebody's doing that, keep it up, right? That's, I wouldn't want to ever say anything against that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's something that could be managed too. You take a certain number of names for the day, pray for them. I mean, if you're in a parish of 3,000 members, that might be a little more daunting, but the majority of LCMS parishes, parishes are, are not, mm-hmm. they're not mega churches. And that's not a bad thing because that enables you to care for them and to pray for them more often and in a more intimate way, quite frankly. So I don't, I don't think that that's, that's a bad thing at all. Mm-hmm. No sin mm-hmm. in a giant church either. That's not my point. But my point is to be able to know them all by name and to know them in a fairly close way isn't, isn't a bad thing at all for the pastor. Another suggestion that I think is, is good. You have, most congregations are going to have various boards or various committees, various various groupings of people. And so to pray for the work of those groups is, is another way that you can kind of structure your prayers throughout the week so that you're, you're praying for your whole congregation. Like take your board of elders, for example, you're, you pray that God would raise up faithful elders and you can, you can think through those who are on your board presently and, and list off, you know, a number of prayers for each of them. So with our last few minutes in this segment then, or in the episode, let's take a look at some misconceptions, some popular misconceptions about the discipline of prayer. David, what would be an example of, of one of those? Well, we mentioned, we just talked about, uh, I think the most prevalent one is this, like you're twisting God's arm or you're, you're getting him to do something that he, that he doesn't actually want to do when you pray. Um, like, like genie, genie in a lamp sort of a thing. So God do this for me. And I pray this for in Jesus name or something, but, but in the, in your mind, you're thinking, okay, I believe in the the power of prayer that somehow I have power over God and I can get him to do what I want him to do 
and it may not actually be what he wants to do. Yeah. And that's not to say that God doesn't actually answer prayers and that and that results don't come about because you've petitioned him. I mean, we get into tricky questions about providence, but it's certainly biblical to say, I've prayed for this and God answered it. Mm-hmm. Always with the caveat, according to his will. But that doesn't mean that your prayers are just in vain. That you're just doing them just to do them. It's part of the divine mystery of, of providence. It may very well have been his will to do something because we prayed for it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. To wait, to wait for us to actually pray before he does something, and that was his will all along. Right. And I think we actually talked about that at some length in the Providence episode. And you'll if I don't remember the number off the top of my head. But just go to yeah. wordfitlyspoken.org and type in Providence, you'll find it. And Lovely a picture million, of birds. And a, and a million other episodes too. That's uh, true. That's true. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, but the the point being that, like you say, we can't twist God. We're not forcing him to do something as if he didn't have control over everything already. But rather, it is a firm recognition of our complete and utter dependence upon God in everything. Yeah, yeah and, and you get to see this, you know, in different ways, depending on where you are. In a heavy agricultural area like where I am, the prayers, say, for the harvest certainly have a more significant resonance than they might in a concrete jungle somewhere. And so we're acknowledging God's providence or that God would providentially provide for us in the form of rain and abundant crops and that sort of thing, which comes back then to knowing the congregation, knowing, knowing how to pray. But it is interesting how this, this acknowledgement of God's control is, is really reflected in our individual settings. Cause look, if we, you know, if we pray for the corn crop and we're down in South Florida it's not quite the same as if you're in Iowa, right? right? Or if we pray for the nuclear missile silos and we're not up in North Dakota where you're at, Zelwyn, it doesn't just, it rings a little hollow. <laughs> that they'd be kept locked or something. I'm not really sure what we'd be praying for that right. one. But. Well, I was trying to think of your nat- your uh, your industry and uh, I already used corn. I didn't want to go to cattle. So I was just, you know. Cattle and nukes. Yeah, that's basically North, North Dakota. Yes, maybe some beaded jewelry here and there. Yeah. I think what you're saying, Willie, it's actually a really uh, healthy point. The the places where we recognize that we're not in control, those are the places where prayer is naturally going to be most heartfelt or most urgent, right? If I never really think about my food, how it gets to my table, or if I'm not part of a farming community, you know, prayers for a good harvest, for protection from you know, unseasonable weather, they just, they don't always ring true in, in me. And that doesn't mean that they're, that that's a bad prayer to make, but it's just, it doesn't correspond with, with a person's experience. So yeah, very good stuff, guys. Any, uh, any last words before we sign off here? I think that what we, what we want to do here with, uh, with this kind of an episode is is just to encourage the recovery of the way the scriptures speak about piety and about prayer as well, and to say that you know this this is a good thing, this is part and parcel of the Christian life, and to be able to talk about it uh, not in a bragging or prideful kind of a way, but in in a way that shows here's here's what it looks like. Here are some of the nuts and bolts. Here's here's some of the things that are assumed. I think it's it's a really helpful thing to do. And also with it, you know, we don't want to try to make like, okay, here's the the set way of praying that you need to do as if this was the only legitimate way of prayer, because that's not the case it either. The whole point is, is that we are called to pray and how that happens is going to be a, a matter of an individual sort of thing. But the the whole point is that we are called to do it because we are Christians. And so the specifics of it, you know, we you can leave up to your individual conscience as long as we remember that our Lord has promised to hear us when we do it. Good stuff. Thanks so much, guys. A pleasure as always. Especially thank you, Reverend Apple. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find all the episodes of the podcast and all of our blog posts as well. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash wordfitly. Twitter, at WordFitly and our Facebook discussion group, WordFitly Posting. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi, David Apple. God love you and God bless.